Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. Today I am speaking with Nina Thomas, the manager of the Westerville History Museum in Westerville, Ohio. In this episode, we will talk about Nina's academic and professional background, a day in the life of a museum manager, the different ways that the museum and public historians engage with the public, and what she looks for when she's hiring new employees at the museum. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Nina Thomas, and I'm the museum manager at the Westerville History Museum. Great, and I look forward to talking to you a bit about what your day looks like as a museum manager at the uh, museum. But before we do that, can you talk a little bit about your professional and academic background? Uh, how did you get to where you are? Yeah, <clears throat> so I started out, um, I went to community college for two years, so I got my associate's degree, um, and I really found that I loved history classes, uh, social studies. Um, I didn't get a history degree. I went to OSU and pursued strategic communication, which is a pretty broad degree. And I did that because I have a lot of varied interests and I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. But I knew that if I had something that was broad, I could figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to pick something that really pigeonholed me into a career path, not knowing how it would turn out. Um, so I did strategic communication and I minored in art history. Um, and while I was graduating, well, while I work, while I was going to school, I started working at the library here as a page. So I was shelving books here, and I had the HR director at the time um, really wanted to see me grow further in my career. So she suggested I continue to apply for other jobs at the library, and one of them was in the tech center. So I started working in the tech center, actually up here where we are. And uh, so I worked there for a while. And then while the year I was graduating, this job in local history, it was a local history department here at the library, opened up. And it was full-time working as basically an assistant to the manager at the time. Um, and so I applied for that and we kind of hit it off and I started working for her and she really became kind of a mentor to me. So I had just a bachelor's degree and I was working in local history and I remember people commenting like, how'd you get this job when you don't have any of this background right. really? <laughs> and it was just being in the right place at the right time and having people invest in me. So having the HR person who really wanted to see me, really thought I'd be a good fit for that role. And then uh, my boss at the time who was just really basically saw things in me maybe I didn't see in myself. And as I continued to work for her, I found I really did love that work. I loved working with uh, the public. I loved doing public programming. We did exhibits. So it was really exciting. Um, and I went back to school. So I got my master's in library science with a focus in museum studies. So that's where I took a lot of museum classes. Uh -huh. um, so it was kind of nice because we're a museum within a public library. So that degree really fit my career at the time. So, and still does, because that's now she retired and I basically took over for her and um, I've been the manager for about four years now. Great. And so what does a day in the manager's life look like? Um, every day is different. We, I mean, a lot of email, um, a lot of research requests. So people might be doing research on their houses or on their families. So we help with that. Um, but also we're working on planning for exhibits. So we're doing research for our next history exhibits. Um, we're doing, um, going to meetings. We have a lot of partnerships. So I'm on the board of the Westerville Historical Society. I help plan all of their events um, and their programs. But we actually host them here at the library. 
so yeah, it's a lot of emails. It's it's research. It's prep. It's different every day. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, the Westerville the his, historical society. I, I I moved to Westerville in 2019. And so I joined the society just in time for COVID to hit. Oh. And so I've never actually been to one of the meetings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's interesting that I, I didn't realize that you were part of it. That's that's good to know. I've been meaning to start <laughs> coming to those meetings. Yeah. Because uh, I believe they have started back up yes, again. Yes, we started right? back up in person in September last year. So okay. before that, we were doing virtual programs. And so I would be recording them or kind of editing them and putting them together online. So we did a few of those, and they were actually pretty well attended. And we reached people that we wouldn't have probably who wouldn't yeah. actually come to a historical society meeting. But, yeah, we, we have been meeting in person. We actually have one in a couple weeks. Really? Yeah. Might have to get that information yeah. from you then. <laughs> Okay, so you're part of the, so you're you're part of the uh, Westville Historical Society, and you help people with their uh, research requests, mm-hmm. um, and you have an actual archive room yes. that allows researchers, right? Yeah, so we have <laughs> yeah we have an archive that's on our second floor, so we do research appointments. Okay. So if someone will email or call and say they're researching something. We'll pull the materials ahead of time and help them uh, with their research. Um, but we also work on a lot of different projects, so. Like, um, for example, the parks department, when they're they're opening a new park and the park is going to have a history theme. And so they come to us for, you know, fact checking or research. Mm-hmm. So we do personal research, but also just working on different projects. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that, that's that's very cool. So I did I have seen on um, pop up on Facebook and various other social media that you've that you've put together a bunch of videos mm-hmm. on Westerville history and that seems like a perfect, a, a pretty effective way of engaging with um, kind of the broader public. But so, how do you uh, approach engaging with the public? I mean, you are you are engaging in what we what's kind of public history. Yes. And so, how do you what is what is your explain your your philosophy on public history? I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think. Yeah, there's obviously a big difference between, you know, kind of academic history and public history, because public history, you're engaging people that say, I don't like history or I'm not really that interested in history. And one of my favorite challenges is to get people interested in history because people say they don't like it, but it might be because, I don't know, history was a bunch of facts and dates, which I didn't like particularly. I didn't know I liked history because if it was taught that way, it's like, that's boring. But what interests me are the people or the stories or you know, how, you know, relating to the past or relating to people or learning something new that I didn't know before. And so I think with public history, thinking about what would engage people is the stories, is how you tell a story um, and bringing things into recent day and thinking about what's going on right now and what was happening in the past and how can we connect that. Um, I think relevancy is really important to people um, who might not be interested in history, but are interested in their community or interested in the stories or interested in what's going on now and why it's that way. So we kind of try to tell stories that help paint pictures for people um, to connect the past with today. Yeah, I noticed that you've put together episodes that focus on specific people. There's one on like the first female police officer, I believe, was one of them. Yes. And so, yeah, the, the human story does seem to be the the missing element for a lot of people because yeah. I, I've encountered the same where a lot of students come into my classes, especially back when I was teaching the you know, the general education type history courses where right. everyone just had to take it to check that box. And a lot of those students just despised it because they didn't like the 
the way that they had been taught history before, which was memorization. You've right. got to memorize all these names right. and dates, and who cares? Right. You know, Wikipedia does, knows all that stuff for me, so right. why do I have to memorize all that <laughs> right. stuff? And generally, they don't become interested until, yeah, like you said, you can kind of humanize it, tell the stories, um, kind of focus on not so much the memorization of names and dates, but kind of all of the, just the connections, what brings them all together, why do things happen the way they happen. Right. You'll naturally use some names and dates in that story, but it's not, that's not the focus of it. And that's not the, the focus is the, the story of the humans and all right. of that. Well, like, I'm not, like, I, there's people that get really interested in, like, Civil War battle history. And they know every date and every place. And that is so boring to me. I am not interested in that <laughs> right. at all. Right. But I am interested in the war. I am interested in why we why we fought that war, what was happening with people, what was going on with slavery. So I want to hear those stories. I just, you get you lose me if it's like, oh, that was the battle at this place for three days. It's like, I don't, yeah. eyes glaze over. It's right. just not that interesting to me. Yeah, and there there definitely are people who do who do like those details, definitely. And so there, there are some people, and... And I think that could have been why it was taught that way a lot is because those folks are tend to be the ones that go into history as right. teachers <laughs> right. because they, they, they love the minute details of, yeah, the third corps movement to the right at the battle of, you know, the little, little round top or whatever. Right. And so I've just got that wrong. So I'm sure I'm <laughs> going to get all kinds of complaints about that. But, um, but yeah, yeah. There are the people right. that are into those details, they tend to, those, I think for a long time, those tend to be the folks that went into history and they became the teachers. And so they right. kind of assumed that everybody felt the same way about those minute details. Right. And the, it's not the case. Right. And I'm not discount. I mean, yeah, we need to know dates. We need to know when things happened. And oh, yeah. We need to contextualize what was going on in other parts of the world when things were happening. But I think, you know, just people from the general public who are coming into the museum to with their family to look at something or learn something, that's not really the approach I would take with them or the approach that I want to go into a museum and read a bunch of dates. I want to hear the stories. And, and one of the things that actually kind of brings um, that that reminded me of is right now you've got that exhibit going on where it's just the photographs yeah. from, I forget the guy's Gary name. Gardner. There we go. <laughs> Gary Gardner. Um, and so you've got all those couple dozen, I don't know, 50 or a hundred. I don't know how many photos you have down there, but it's a lot of photos of just kind of everyday life that yeah. he's been taking for the last few years. There's no, there's no text, no. if I remember. There's no context no. or anything. It's just, this is just a shot in the life. And yeah. so I thought that was a really interesting way to present. In a way, you're ta- you are presenting Westerville history, at least the recent past, when this guy's been taking photos. Right. Um, but it does, it's it, it provides a lot of storytelling without actual text. Yeah. You know, the whole, the whole cliche about every picture's worth a thousand words, however you want to put that. But it does let people see kind of snapshots of life, which hopefully come together to tell, kind of a, put together a, a picture or a story in people's minds. I think that's a really interesting way to do that. Yeah. When we were curating the photos, that was exactly what we did. We said, you, we, we picked, because he sent us, I mean, he's been taking photos every day for 20 years. Right. And of everything. And some of the pictures are amazing because he's capturing things that nobody else has captured. But we purposefully curated the photos to be something that you wouldn't need text, that you'd be able to see exactly what was going on or know, you know, have building recognition or have um, activity recognition where you wouldn't have to have any content. But um, we called it accidental history because he didn't start out to collect history, but mm-hmm. he is doing it. And I think he's actually a great example of someone engaging people in 
public history because he will post a photo of like an old farm and give a little history of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And so it is kind of a very like uh, relevant way to share the past. That's a appealing as well because his photographs are beautiful. <laughs> right. Yes. They, they, and they're very, they're, they're very, they're very compelling. And the, Sure, they're they're curated, uh, but the ones that are there, there's there's actually a lot of photos down there that I scrolled through with my my parents were in town a couple months ago, and so we were wandering around uptown and walking through the thing, and and um, they and I, there were some photos there where we where, where we we did want to know what the context of right. it was, and so I was like like looking for the usual little info card or something to find out who is that guy because he's doing something really goofy, and I want to know who that guy is. <laughs> so anyway, it's a it's a very interesting way. To to present local history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it wouldn't really necessarily work on a, if you were to take that and put it in no. Washington, no, D.C. It's very or local. It's very local. Yeah. It's relevant to the people that live here because, yeah, they can see all of the buildings. You can walk outside and see most of the buildings. Right. Uh, so it's a very in- interesting way to do that. And um, so, yeah, between that and the uh, the videos that I was talking about, I think you guys have done some really interesting things here. Yeah. And um, you know, I hope you keep it going forward. Um, so when you, so you are the manager of the museum, so, and many of the listeners to this podcast are history students. And so what types of things are you looking for when you're, when you're hiring someone or potentially hiring someone, I'm not sure when the last time you hired someone for the museum was, but when you're thinking about hiring uh, people to work for the museum, what do you look for? Yeah, we have a small staff, but we have interviewed and I've hired a few people for our department. Uh, for the museum. Um, For public history, one of the things we're really looking for is comfortability in front of people. So we always ask for them to kind of do something where they are showing, being able to show us that they are, they can present. So we will often ask for a video of them talking about something historical or we'll have some sort of activity um, because it's important to me to know that they're comfortable doing that because a lot of people are interested in history or even libraries might, I don't there's this myth about libraries, and maybe it's true of academic libraries, but that it's like a quiet place where you can like read a book. <laughs> right, everyone's um, just shushing you. Yeah, yeah, and it's not in a public <laughs> library. I mean, I've worked in this, this library for over 15 years, and it's nothing, it is not quiet. It is very, you know, people everywhere, lots of activities going on. Um, but in the public history world, we are, you know, on camera, we're doing videos, we are doing walking tours, we are presenting. So for me, it's really important for me to know that they're comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, other things I'm looking for is kind of like being a little bit of a jack of all trades, because when you're in a small museum, we don't have, you know, if you're in a larger museum, you'll have someone who's in charge of exhibits and that's your role or someone who's doing, you know, curation of objects. Um, but here we do it all. So I'm doing curatorial work every day as well as um, public programming, as well as exhibit prep so it's a lot of being having a lot of different skill sets even if you're not an expert at one thing if you have a little bit of everything um, I think that's really helpful in a role like this in a small museum right and that I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the public speaking part of it because I think that does tend to get lost a lot um, a lot of people assume that when you work in a museum it's all about setting up the exhibits and then maybe going and hiding in the back right, or something. Right. <laughs> but no. the reality is that yeah, your your job is to engage with the public. Yeah. I mean, there's really not much point to a museum if it's not engaging with the public. Right. And so you do need to be able to communicate with people. And you need to be able to communicate with 
large, diverse constituencies, yes. I'm sure. Because yeah. I'm sure you've got lots of different... You've, you mentioned that some of your customers, quote-unquote, are yeah. um, private people, but then you've also got city departments, and that right. they say so you've got to be able to be flexible and talk to diverse audiences. Yeah, and... you need to be comfortable talking to people from all different levels. So anyone from, you know, city council to just, you know, a customer, like you just everybody you're when you're doing public history, you're just you're with children, you're with you know older people, you're with people on different levels of their uh, status, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Different capacities, different, yeah, different. different occupations, careers yeah. and all that. Yeah. So what do you have coming up at the through the museum? What, are there any new projects that you're working on, new exhibits, new uh, ideas? <clears throat> we are currently working on preparing for a new exhibit. Um, we're going to be doing one on William Faust, who was the first black graduate of Westerville High School and the first black graduate of Otterbein. Um, but he has a very interesting story. His parents were enslaved. Mm. He actually lived in the Hanby House, which is a historic home mm-hmm. called the Hanby House. Some people have said it probably should be called the Hanby Faust House just mm. because the Fausts lived there as well. And their story is really important as well. But mm-hmm. um, but regardless, yeah. So about him and kind of um, catching on different subjects of his world. And then also we're going to do a smaller exhibit on um, worldwide prohibition um, and talking about, you know, we talk about prohibition a lot because our one of the largest parts of our collection is prohibition collection. So we, our building was where the Anti-Saloon League was headquartered. Mm-hmm. So uh, Westerville has a huge temperance prohibition history. And so we're always telling something to do with prohibition or temperance. And so we are going to talk about all the different countries that also tried prohibition, that it's not uniquely American. Um, because a lot of people think of it as this really weird, random thing that America tried right. and we're freaks, but it's, you know, freaks. Um, but, you know, <laughs> other pe- other countries have had similar movements yeah. um, of temperance and prohibition. So we're trying to tie that in. Um, there was an author um, who wrote a book called Smashing the Liquor Machine that came out a couple years ago. And it's mm-hmm. very focused on worldwide prohibition. And we had him come and speak. And he was he's just a really interesting researcher and his research is very different than some of the other uh, authors who've covered prohibition in a very narrow way. He's covering it from a global perspective. So we're kind of tying in some of his quotes and his story. So that's one of the things we're working on. We also have different um, partnerships we're doing. So this year we're doing a partnership with the Kerwin Institute um, out of OSU studies, racism and, um, So we are working with them on uh, kind of a community. It's going to be a community collaboration where we're going to help put together ways that just general public can help with research Mm -hmm. and discovering, you know, some of our history that has been not talked about a lot, particularly racial deed restrictions um, and studying, you know, opportunities. So they do a lot of opportunity mapping to show you know, basically how racism has affected the resources in a community and how people were kept in certain segregated. And even though in Westerville, it's like, oh, well, we're in Ohio and that didn't really happen. Well, it did. And so we're working with them and it's going to be exciting because I think there's a lot of people in the community who would love to participate in research or something like that, but they might not have the tools to do it. So we're going to help develop, you know, ways that they can do help do that research as well. That, yeah, that's great. The, um, because, yes, there, there tends to be an opinion of people, especially in northern states, that racism is a southern problem and it's not something that happened here. It's a, You bring up, um, like, deed restrictions. And uh, I'm from California originally. I bought my first house in California. And that house was built in the, um, in the 1950s. 
And out in California, the the the, the racial covenants, as they called them on yeah. these, was not directed at uh, black people. It was it was directed at Asians. And so the deed that I signed for this house when I bought it in 2003, uh, there was a section in there that said that you, that I cannot sell this land to Mongolians, to wow. Japanese. It, and it lists, you know, all of the various what today are fairly racist yeah. <laughs> names for uh, names for these people. Uh, and of course, I mean, the Supreme Court outlawed that a long time ago. So if there was there was a little note next to it saying this part's no longer legal, but it's still there because yeah. it's the, the deed. It, it's a legal document, so they can't just cut that out. Right. So it's been there for a long time. And so it's good to hear that. Um, and I like to I, I always show that. I, I took a you know a scan of it and I show it to all my students and they're like yeah this is California the great liberal bastion of the United States right. in the 1950s they, it was they even they were talking about this stuff and so it's great to to hear that you're wow, kind yeah. of working on that um, because Ohio I mean there's the same same type of thing was happening yeah. this was not this was it was a nationwide phenomenon it just tended to be in the northern states it just wasn't as enshrined in law as much as it was in the South. Right. It was still there. It was it's there. just it was just more kind of tradition and custom than yeah. than law. So that's that's interesting to hear that you're working on that for uh, for Westerville because I know that in Westerville we tend to think of the you know the Underground Railroad, yeah. the, the Stoner House with uh, as yeah. as a stop on the Underground Railroad and various other stops right. around here and the um, the Africa community on Africa Road and um, but yeah, it is interesting to hear that it's not, it's much more complicated. It wasn't just right. necessarily the good guys here. Right. There were all these other things at play also. Right. Our museum specialist has been working on writing, um, we're calling it racism in Westerville. And it's a toolkit to understand, at least from what we know today, the different ways in which racism existed right here. And we're kind of opening it up by saying, you know, Westerville really prides itself on being the home of, you know, the Underground Railroad, and we were involved in all these great things, but at the same time, this racism existed here mm -hmm. in very real ways, and um, we're taking accountability as well as the museum, as the one who, you know, we've been around for 30 years, and we often are the ones telling these narratives, and, um, you know, we haven't always told those stories as well. We do tell a lot of the Underground Railroad, so we want to make sure that we're also telling the full picture uh, as best we know it. And as we learn new things, it's like, yeah, the Otterbein Cemetery had their, the mausoleum there had a racial deed restriction. Only Caucasians were allowed to be buried in there. And we have the document and the files. So mm -hmm. being able to show that and say, you know, in Westerville too, <laughs> this was happening here as well. So are there anything, anything about your, your life as a museum manager or as a public historian that we haven't really touched on that, uh, that, that you think may be of interest to students or just the general public who are curious what you might what folks like you might do for a living <laughs> yeah um one of the th i don't know if we've really talked about any of our programs or tours we do a lot of walking tours and programs uh for the general public um about two years ago we started doing prohibition walking tours because that's our focus but we opened up in westerville adora a designated outdoor refreshment area and so we did a partnership with our uptown um, like our CVB, our Visitors and Convention Bureau, which is called Visit Westerville, and then the Uptown Inc., which is the one responsible for the historic district, to offer prohibition tours within the Dora. Mm -hmm. And that is a totally different audience than would typically maybe come through the museum. So we're reaching different people in different ways, kind of bringing the museum out onto the street. And I think there's there's just a lot of ways that you can engage the public um, 
that are creative that um, get you telling history in different ways. Yeah, people have beer and they're kind of just looking for something to do and they might not necessarily be super history buffs, but they're interested. They're, you know, they're curious. And so I just think that's a good example of kind of engaging people that might not set foot in a museum, but you still get to tell history in different mm-hmm. unique ways, maybe. Yeah, because they're already in Uptown. Right. And they're, I mean, they, there are boundaries to the, the, the Dora area, so right. you can't leave right. <laughs> with Uptown <laughs> right. with your drink. So if you're stuck there and you're tired of going into the shops or something, sure, it might be kind of, it's kind of cool to, to hear about the history of all the previous generations who were not able to walk around uptown right. with, with open right. canisters. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that that's 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 great. Um and I think that sounds like a really some really cool projects. I hadn't heard about the uh, prohibition walking tour, but I'll probably look into that. Um we're calling it they're called tipsy temperance tours. Nice. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um so uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Did you have anything that you felt like recommending for our audience today? Um, have you ever heard of the book How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith? I have not. It's a fantastic book. Um, the author visited different historic places that tell history of slavery. Um, and it's just a fascinating book, I think, for anyone interested in public history because he really tackles how history is publicly done through tours, bus tours, walking tours, and Mm. how people tell the stories that are difficult and what stuff is left out. Um, And he really touched on some stuff that for me personally in my role was really helpful because he talks about um, people being interested not in history, but in nostalgia. Mm -hmm. They like to feel like they look back on the past with these, you know, rose colored glasses and oh, it was so nice back then and all this stuff. And it's like, well, who was it nice for? And is that really history. History is actually really ugly a lot of the time and complicated and filled with racial (laughs) restrictions and sexism and, you know, homophobia. So telling those stories um, and being able to include, you know, true history pieces. I just thought that book was really well written and really thought provoking. Um, And then just for fun, if you've never heard of Philomena Kunk, she's a BBC, she's an actress, but she plays an interviewer on the BBC, and there's a series of videos of her interviewing subject matter experts, mm. but just asking them the most bizarre questions <laughs> that they weren't expecting, okay. and then they have to take have a straight face answering it. So anyone who's like interested in becoming a subject matter expert where you'd be interviewed, it's just really funny. So it's just for fun, but I laugh a lot watching her. Is She's that hysterical. a uh, YouTube series? Or? Yeah, I mean, it was on the BBC, I think, on different platforms, but you can find them all on on youtube now (laughs) that sounds awesome yeah (laughs) great i'm actually going to recommend a new york times article um that just came out a few days ago january 8th i guess uh called as historians gather no truce in the history wars and this is a new york times article on the american historical association conference that happened last week Normally, the American Historical Association conference doesn't get coverage in the New York Times <laughs> because it's in, you know it's normally an academic conference, uh, which nobody cares about. But in this case, uh, the president of the AHA wrote an article back in August, I want to say, um, where he kind of criticized the presentist view that a lot of historians have lately on the past. What he says is happening a lot of times is that our modern focus on um, diversity, um, you know, race, class, gender, he says, sometimes goes a little too far when we are looking at the past. 
um, because uh, you know a lot of historians try to be careful not to you know pass judgment on the past mm-hmm. because of their their the the past people of the past having very different views on race class and gender but it does still kind of filter into the work a bit and so the this the president of the AHA wrote this essay where he kind of said that we're the the, the, the presentism is a little bit too pronounced and and that sparked a huge discussion and you don't want to say conflict because it's not like those historians fighting in the streets, but it's uh, definitely caused a, a, a bit of a to-do among, his, among historians, especially younger historians who are often the ones that are pulling or pushing the race, class, gender analysis on, on the past. And this kind of came to a head at the conference uh, because there was a, a special panel put together where historians of kind of the older generation and the younger generation came together to talk about this. And there was, for an academic setting, some of the words were a little harsh. Not There was a one profanity or anything like that, but for, you know, from an academic perspective, mm-hmm. uh, your analysis is bad. <laughs> that, that level, but still, it's the type of thing that stings when you're... And so there, it, it got a little bit tense. And the, um, the the president, the guy who wrote the original article, then gave his presidential address where he kind of doubled down on it a little bit. And so anyway, the uh, it, it caused a bit of a controversy. And so it made for a, a, bit, a little bit of excitement at the AHA conference in 2023. So the New York Times article does a pretty good job of summarizing the the debate um, and kind of the what happened at the um, at the convention. Of course, you can find the, pre- the the James Sweet is the president of the AHA, and you can find his article online. Um, and then you can look at Twitter and all that to find all the responses to it. So, anyway, Super the New York Times. Is a, so I'll post yeah. the links to the uh, the the New York Times article, and I'll post a link to the Westerville the the, the History Museum um, in the uh, episode notes and. Um, So thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Amazon Music, Pandora, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. This podcast does not represent the views of Southern New Hampshire University, despite my affiliation with it. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Nina Thomas, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourselves and each other.